Our reading is coming from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God. Won't you pray with me? Father, as we come to learn how to speak to you, we need you to speak to us. Please will you speak to us, Lord. Spirit of God, bring us to the Father through the Son. Amen. In English, there's a kind of a rhythm to the way we say the Lord's Prayer. It's almost like singing a sweet little tune. When you pray it with your kids at bedtime, it can be like a nursery rhyme. Hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon. Same with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's helpful as a memory device, and, and it's sweet when our kids do it. We love it. But it's not helpful for much else. Because the Lord's Prayer is not a lullaby. It's more like a revolution song. In Luke's Gospel, we read that Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, Teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. John's people have their prayer. We want our prayer. We want our revolution to have its own song. It's a very human impulse. In the French Revolution, they sang La Marseille. The Russians sang Vashavianka. Our people, South African people groups, have their own revolution song. Sari Mare, Senzeni Na, Siyaya, Umshiniwami. Every revolution has its song. The Lord's Prayer is closer to a revolution song than it is to a lullaby. Because if this prayer is prayed and answered, it will bring a revolution the likes of which the world has never seen. And nowhere is that clearer than in the opening part of the prayer, the verses we read this morning, verses 9 and 10 of Matthew chapter 6. What do those verses say? It sounds like a very straightforward question, but it isn't. Because, precisely because we are so familiar with the Lord's Prayer, the way we've memorized it, the way we sing song through it with our kids at night, works against us. Even the verse partitions are unhelpful. Just look there in the ESV. What you have in verse 9 is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now we're supposed to treat that as a unit, because then it moves on to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's nice, but it's not really how Matthew wrote it down in the Greek. The prayer opens by addressing our Father in heaven. And then literally it says this, Our Father in heaven, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it emphasizes the your. Greek has a way of doing that. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Reading it like that helps us to see what the focus is. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for. Dividing verse 9 and 10 distracts us from that core focus. 
So let's just have a look at each one of those elements and how they form a whole and how the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. We start with God's name. Father, your name be hallowed. What is God's name? Well, if you went to the Old Testament to get an answer, the best place to go would be Exodus chapter 3. Moses asks that very question in his first encounter with God. So let me just read it for you. Exodus 3 from verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. If they come and ask me, what is his name? What is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am, be, am to be remembered throughout all generations. God's name is I am. It's a play on the verb to be. Yahweh literally means he is. What does that mean? What does that name mean? Well, in the first place, in that context, in Exodus chapter 3, it must mean that he is faithful and present to every generation. He is the God of your fathers. He's the God of Abraham's generation, Isaac's generation, Jacob's generation. He's the God of Moses and his generation. He is present to every generation of his people in faithfulness, fulfilling his promise to bless humanity. That's what his name must mean in the first instance. But if that's true, I am must mean a few other things as well. If he is, he is present to every generation, then he is confined to none. Does that make sense? A generation is by its very nature captured in space and time, confined. But clearly he is not. He is eternally. Eternally he is. If he's before space and time, above space and time, if he transcends space and time, well then... Clearly, he doesn't need space and time to exist. He does not need creation to exist. But from Exodus 3, it's obvious that creation needs him. If he is present to every generation in the same way, in loving faithfulness, in a determination to bless his people, it means he doesn't change. His character doesn't change. He simply is. I think we could go on all day. It's obvious. We could go on all day and never plumb the depths of what this name, I am, really means. Pope Benedict XIV said, I am is a name and a non-name at the same time. This name reveals and it conceals at the very same time. I am is not like his created beings. In that sense, he's far off. He's mysterious. But he has given them his name. And in that sense, he comes near. This is the name 
of the far-off God who is always close to his people in faithfulness with a determination to bless them. This is the name he gives. I am. And as we read on from Exodus 3 through the Old Testament, we find that God demands that this name is honored. And he guards his name jealously. Let me just uh, give you a few examples. Exodus 34 When he renews the covenant with Israel, he says, You shall worship no other God, for I am, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In Deuteronomy 28, Israel are warned to fear and honor this awesome name, I am, is your God. Again, through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 48, For my name's sake, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for his name. He will not allow it to be profaned. He will not give it to another. And then we read this in Philippians 2, chapter 9. Written by Paul the rabbi. With all of this Old Testament background in mind. God is jealous for his name. It is the name above every other name. He will not give it to another. And then Paul writes this. God exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name. So that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is the Greek translation of I am. The name that God guarded so jealously in the Old Testament, he freely gives to Jesus. And Jesus has no hesitation in accepting it. You remember from John's gospel, the Jews wanted to stone him when he said, before Abraham was, I am. It gets even crazier. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17 says, the Lord, I am is the spirit in other words god freely gives his name i am to both the son and the spirit why because it was theirs to begin with what he was concealing he has now revealed and when we see all of this it gives new meaning to a passage that we know so well and that we love so much matthew Chapter 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, which name? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is God's name? By the end of the Bible, we know his name, I am, is eternally Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's God's name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is precious because there is no other name by which we can be saved. It is only by the Spirit of the Son that we can call God Father. That's God's name. What does it mean for God's name to be hallowed? Because that's what we're praying for. Hallowed be your name. It means that his name should be 
set apart, honored, that it should be made famous, that it should be made known through all the world, that it should be revered and worshipped and exalted. But as one French philosopher put it, when we pray that prayer, we are asking for something that already exists eternally with full and complete reality. At one level, we are praying for something that already is. God's name already is exalted. But at another level, we are praying for it to happen. That's what on earth as it is in heaven means. It means that what we are praying for is now, but is also not yet. What we are praying for is that the heavenly reality will break through the earthly illusion. In the words of C.S. Lewis, we're praying for the foggy anesthetic to lift. We are praying for stubborn, hard-hearted human beings to finally see things as they truly are. Father, hallowed be your name. What would it look like if human beings did see things as they truly are? What would that look like? What if... What if we understood that, Father, your name be hallowed means, we understood what that means, and we prayed it, and we meant it, and God answered that prayer? What would happen? Let me ask the question another way. How many people think of God as some sort of prison warden walking around with a shambok looking for people to thrash if they step out of line? Some sort of correctional services official who favors the good and punishes the bad. How many people think of God like that? Many. How many people, on the other hand, think of God as some sort of ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend who now works in government? And because they, they know this person, they know how to manipulate them, they know which buttons to press, they can get them to do anything they want. You know, they can get their building plans passed or their fine canceled or that private ward that their mother needs. Just imagine if people knew that God was neither of these things. He's not a prison warden. He's not your ex-girlfriend. Just imagine if they knew God as Father. Strong, formidable. He's no pushover. That's unthinkable. He's so powerful it's scary. But he loves you. There is nothing he wouldn't do for you. His heart breaks and it bleeds for you out of sheer love he looks at you with nothing but fatherly affection imagine if people knew that imagine if people through the spirit and the son if people knew god as father what would it do to their hearts what would it do to their lives if God was seen as he is, if his true being and character broke through into our lives, if his name was rightly understood, it would be a revolution. Father, hallowed be your name. Father, your kingdom come. God's kingdom is his reign, his rule. The heavenly reality is that God's rule is absolute. It is uncontested. It is limitless. It knows no bounds. On earth, God's kingdom breaks in through his king. 
Remember what Jesus proclaims when he arrives on the scene, the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe the good news. When we pray, let your kingdom come. Once again, we are praying for the heavenly reality to break through the earthly illusion. We're praying for the foggy anesthetic to lift. Now, we often use D-Day in the Second World War to understand this tension between now and not yet. From the perspective of the history books, World War II was won and lost on Tuesday, the 6th of June, 1944. That's when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. That was the death blow to the Nazi regime. That was when it all turned. That's the turning point. But from the perspective of the ordinary citizen living in Europe at that time, the war raged on for another whole 11 months. And during those 11 months, it didn't feel anything like victory. Bombs were still falling. Soldiers were still being killed. Ordinary citizens were still being brutalized and shipped off to concentration camps in cattle trucks. Anne Frank was sent to Auschwitz long after D-Day, months after D-Day. Now, if you were in Auschwitz in the winter of 1944, what hope would you have? But if you were in Auschwitz in the winter of 1944, and you knew that the boots of your liberators were marching across Europe in your direction, it might just give you the hope you needed to hang on. So it is with the kingdom of God. The rule of King Jesus can look can at times look very weak and distant to us. But his victory is certain. And this is not the rule of yet another tyrant. It's not as though one tyrant is being overthrown by another. It's not some sort of coup d'etat in a single corrupt regime. This is freedom. The fact is that we have been so conditioned by the captivity and oppression of sin that freedom, when it first arrives, can seem very strange to us. You know, we've been in the dark so long that the light can at first appear harsh and unrelenting. And we want nothing to do with it at first. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are asking God to turn the world on its head. Of course, he's turning it the right way up. But at first, we're going to feel upside down. Let's just take a few examples, some examples that really capture our attention. Money, sex, power. Those are themes that consume us. Just listen to how they work in the kingdom of God. So in the words of the king himself, money, listen to his words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Meditate on any of those statements and you will very quickly acknowledge that to get from where we are to where he's calling us takes a revolution. 
takes a revolution in our own hearts. Sex and sexuality. Listen to the words of the king. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I mean, that is like throwing a hand grenade in the playground of our culture. Even to say he made them male and female, that's very fast becoming an explosive statement. And again, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Think about the porn industry and then think about that statement. And yet to those who would self-righteously look down on the sexually immoral, the king also says, Truly I tell you, prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Money, sex, finally power. Just listen to how the king compares the kingdom of God to the kingdoms of this world. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The kingdom of God, I think it's very clear, the kingdom of God is upside down because it's the right way up, and it takes a revolution to get there. D-Day for this revolution was the cross of Christ. This revolution was one when the king himself died the death of a slave to sin, to set sin slaves free to give them life. And now his spirit is marching across the country and victory is certain. We pray, Father, let your kingdom come. Father, your will be done. What does it mean to say that the Father's will is done in heaven? Well, for one thing, it must mean that the heavenly hosts submit to him in perfect loving obedience. But I think it goes further than that. That God's will is done in heaven describes something of the sheer bliss of the Father and the Son held in perfect unity by the bond of the Spirit. This is what we mean when we say God is love, perfect unity of affection and will. If that's the heavenly reality, what do we see here on earth? Well, we don't see perfect loving obedience to the will of the Father. That much is obvious. We don't see the sheer bliss of perfect unity in the bond of love. That much is obvious. What we see is everyone acting as if there's no king in the land and doing what is right in his own eyes. What we see is not your will be done. What we see is my will be done. And it isn't pretty, is it? How do we reconcile these two realities? 
God's will in heaven, man's will on earth. How do we reconcile these two? Well, the place where they collide most obviously is once again the cross. Think about this. Before the cross, Jesus prayed, your will be done. After the cross, Peter preached that even though Jesus was crucified by the hands of lawless men, he was given up by the will of God. So you have Jesus praying that the will of God be done before the cross. We have Peter preaching that the will of done was that the will of God was done at the cross. At some mysterious level, the cross was the Father's will. The Father used that which was not his will to achieve his will. The Father used the deepest, the deepest possible evil, the crucifixion of his son, for the highest possible good, the freedom of slaves to sin, the freedom of humankind, the rescue of humankind. The Son overcame every last breach of God's will by perfect submission to God's will. This is the extraordinary power of God's sovereign will. Even that which opposes his will ends up achieving his will. And so to pray God's will be done is to pray that the heavenly reality would break through and shatter the earthly illusion. What does it look like for us? Let's take it straight from Matthew's gospel. We're in Matthew's gospel. Let's take it just from the rest of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, God's will is to make you clean. Chapter 8, verse 2. His will is to keep you to the very end. Chapter 18, verse 14. His will is to forgive your debts. Chapter 18, verse 23. His will is to give the kingdom to those that don't deserve it, like prostitutes. Chapter 20, verse 14. His will is to gather his people together like a hen gathers her chicks. Chapter 23, verse 37. What part of that don't you want? What part of God's will conflicts with your will? Father, your will be done. Your will be done. Our Father in heaven, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. If we truly pray these words, we are asking, we are pleading with God for a revolution. And this is no ordinary revolution. You know, there's a French proverb that goes, to make an omelet, you need to crack a few eggs. That's pretty harmless. It sounds like breakfast time. But you put those words on the lips of Maximilian Robespierre or Joseph Stalin, and very quickly you realize that the eggs you are cracking are human skulls. The individual is expendable for the sake of the revolution. And then, in the end, the revolution simply replaces one corrupt elite with another corrupt elite. Why? Well, because corruption is in people. It's in people, whether you're a revolutionary or a reactionary. Corruption is inside of us. So it doesn't really matter which group of people have the power. The seeds of corruption are always there. In the ordinary, the ordinary man-made revolution, individuals are dispensable and corruption is inevitable. Not so with God's revolution. In God's revolution, the first one to suffer and die 
is God himself. And he does it so that we don't have to. In God's revolution, individuals are not expendable. Individuals are the goal. In God's revolution, you don't destroy your enemies. You befriend them. You love them. They are the point of the revolution. The victory is not in exterminating them. The victory is in embracing them. God's revolution is advanced as ordinary people are transformed by his love from the inside out, one human being at a time. And that's why God's revolution, because it is an inside-out transformation, that's why it's the only one that lasts. The individual isn't sacrificed for the sake of the collective. The individual freely lays down her life for her friends. It's inside-out. That's why that's the only revolution that lasts. We must also say, also note, that God's revolution doesn't start by attacking the corruption in others, only to end in corruption itself. It's the point we've just been making. It's inside out. It starts with the corruption in me. God's revolution is in me before it's in anyone else. I need to be overthrown and unseated every single day so that when I arrive at the city gates, I don't arrive bearing a petrol bomb or a machete, I come to fellow sinners bearing the free gift of God's grace. Bearing nothing but the gospel. This is my only weapon. This is God's revolution. So why don't we want it? Why do we, why do we struggle to pray these words? Why do we rush through to the second half of the prayer? You know, the part where God must give and forgive. Here's what I think is going on in our hearts. Praying this prayer, when we realize what it is we're praying, praying this prayer is scary. If we see it for what it is, how big it is, it's scary. You know, any change is scary. If we find any change is scary, we're living through COVID. We know that comes with fear. Change comes with fear. But a revolution of this scale is terrifying. And this is change where we least want to see it. This is change that cuts so very close to the bone. Because if God answers the prayer for his name, his kingdom, his will, it means the end of my name, my kingdom, my will. It means the end of what a Yale law professor called God is me. Praying the Lord's prayer is praying for the death of God is me. That's scary. And if we're honest, we don't want that. We are honest with ourselves. We don't want God to answer the Lord's Prayer. So we sing song through to the second half. The second half without the first half is a lot tamer. It's a lot safer. It's a lot easier to get away with God is me. In the second half, my name, my kingdom, my will is a lot more comfortable and at home in the second half. So I rush through to give us this day our daily bread. And I jam it all in there. You will not believe what I can squeeze into give us this day our daily bread. I can park a whole kingdom in there. My kingdom. Now here's the thing. We need to say this. Going to God with our needs is not wrong. In fact, it's the essence of our relationship. Dependence on him is the essence of our relationship. We are his creatures. We are his sons and daughters. We depend on him for everything. Going to him in prayer with our needs 
is what is an expression of the essence of our relationship. It's the way things are supposed to be. The problem is not going to him with our needs. The problem is that we are confused about what we really need. Just have a look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. It's just before the Lord's Prayer. This is what Jesus says just before he gives us the Lord's Prayer. He says this, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Your Father knows what you need. Jesus has our needs in mind when he says, this is how you should pray. Our needs are front of mind when he gives us the Lord of Prayer, the Lord's Prayer. The first half of this prayer is dominated by God's glory. The second half of the prayer is dominated by our experience, but our need runs all the way through. Our needs don't only emerge in the second half of the prayer. The whole prayer is what you and I need. And our Father knows it. And He lists our needs in order of priority. What you need more than anything is your Father in heaven. You need to know you have a heavenly Father who loves you. The world needs to know that. The world needs to know that God's name is Father. His name is Father. And that name is precious. It needs to be set apart, exalted, proclaimed. Because the world needs to know. The world needs to know that his kingdom has come and that his will must be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Because that is the best of all possible worlds. That is what we were made for. We were made for his glory, his kingdom, his will. That is the good life. That is true freedom. That is coming home. God's glory is our homecoming. That is the end of our frantic, insecurity-driven need, our obsession, our mad obsession to make a name for ourselves. Our idolatry of career and education, all that posturing and preening on social media, all the status updates and the Instagram posts, all that projecting of an image that can never be sustained in real life. It's all about making a name for ourselves. Instead, we turn our focus to the one name that is truly worthy of honor. We honor that name. We revere that name. And it sets us free. God's glory, God's honor is my greatest need, my deepest need. What about my kingdom and my will? Well, the problem with making myself king and trying to conform the universe to my will is twofold. First, my will is not very good for the universe. And second, the universe just won't cooperate. It just won't listen. These problems are compounded when everyone in the world is doing the same thing, demanding their kingdom and their will. Here's that Yale law professor again. He writes this. Alas, there is a problem. Who validates the rules for interactions when there is a multiplicity of gods? He's talking about us. I've been told that the ancient Babylonians possessed a multiplicity of gods and therefore faced with similar problems we face, concluded that in cases of conflict, the big gods ate the little ones. That sort of move here and now would serve only to collapse the God is me solution into, into the 
whoever wins is God solution. And of course, that's exactly what we see. Wherever, whenever, it's my name, my will, my kingdom, we end up eating each other alive. But when we replace God is me with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what do we get? Well, instead of small, the small selfishness of God is me. The imploding selfishness, self-obsession with God is me. Instead of all that, we get love, compassion, goodness, kindness, beauty, gentleness, power. All of these and more combined in perfect purity and perfect harmony in the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our greatest need is for the heavenly reality that God is God to break through and shatter the illusion that God is me. What we need more than anything is God, his name, his kingdom, his will. We need it. The world needs it. Let's pray for it. Won't you bow with me? Our Father in heaven, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Fantastic to be with you, everybody. And uh, stay strong in the Lord until next week. Martin will be closing out the rest of the Lord's prayer for us. God bless you all. Take care.